Okay, if you have a Bible, you can open to the book of Jonah. We'll look at the first chapter of that this morning. Uh, Jonah is a book that we have looked at before, but it was like seven years ago, and so if you were even here, you probably didn't remember. Um, but we'll take a few, just, just a, one sermon per week, um, just sort of fill some gaps this summer, because we've got some vacation, we've got the church uh, camp out and stuff, and we'll start a new series, probably a series in the Gospel of Matthew. We'll start that in September. So, uh, so Jonah. <clears throat> Um, so Romans 15, uh, Paul says that whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction. And so, um, former days to, uh, to Paul, that was the old Testament, right? That's what he's talking about. Uh, that's what we have is the old Testament. It was the Hebrew scriptures. Uh, so even though this book, this book of Jonah, uh, was written thousands of years ago about peoples and cultures that have been lost to history, uh, God intended that it would always be meaningful to his people. It would always be relevant to his people. This was written for us. Jonah wrestled with God, and his wrestling is meant to help us in our wrestling with God. And then the Lord Jesus, um, in Luke uh, 24, after the resurrection, uh, he said that everything written in the Bible, again, he's referring largely, I mean, only at that point, <clears throat> to the Hebrew Scriptures, right? Uh, everything written in the Bible, the, the Old Testament, is ultimately about him. <clears throat> so even though Jonah was written centuries before Jesus' time, and even though there isn't actually an explicit verbal reference to Jesus or the Messiah or a prophecy in the normal kind of sense that we would understand it uh, in, in this book, we should be able to find Jesus here. Uh, Jesus says so. Uh, so uh, and in fact, Jesus talks specifically about Jonah uh, in Luke 11, which was our gospel reading that John read. He calls himself one greater than Jonah, and he talks about something called the sign of Jonah, the sign of Jonah. The way Jesus talks about it, the sign of Jonah is something that might be hard to swallow. It's difficult. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, <clears throat> um, it's going to be hard for us <laughs> to hear about the sign of Jonah, is what I mean. Uh, so, so we should pray uh, before we read the scripture. So let's do that. <clears throat> Father, when it comes uh, to our relationship with you, we need more help than we think we do. So we pray that you would show us how good you are, even if it means convincing us of how bad we might be. Uh, we pray that you would help us by the power of your spirit to hear your word now in a Christ-centered way. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. He paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. 
And they said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation, and where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I'm a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you, for I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore, they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood. For you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Jonah's a fascinating book, uh, one of my favorites. Um, it's the only book that, we're, that we will have done twice here at Ascension uh, so far. Um, it's, it's different from other prophetic writings uh, that, that are usually written in sort of a, a direct address format. Uh, this is the story of his experience. It's a story of his personal encounter with God. Uh, this account is definitely something you would not expect of a prophet. You would not expect to find this. Uh, in the middle of the prophetic books of Scripture. Uh, it's basically the story of Jonah's angry disobedience. So this kind of self-deprecation is actually pretty common in the Scriptures. The people who tell their own stories in the Scriptures usually don't portray themselves as the heroes of their stories. But we might expect Jonah to tell the story of this heroic, fearless prophet that he is who sacrifices everything for the sake of God's mission, but instead he's basically the villain of his own story. He's the villain... Uh, it's written with a sense of humor. You can detect that. There's a lot of word plays going on. There's, there's a lot in this book that is really humorous. Go home and read it. It's only four chapters. Uh, read it a couple times this week. It's, it's fun. <laughs> um, it's written with... It's more like a comedy than it is like a tragedy. It's more like a comedy, even though it's dealing with some pretty serious stuff. Terribly serious stuff. Uh, but in fact, it's that comedic tone that helps us not to despair as we read it. It helps us to read it and actually benefit from it. We suspect that Jonah uh, himself must be the one writing the story, who's telling his story here uh, later, and he's able to portray himself as the bad guy for all to see. Maybe he's able even to look back and uh, laugh at himself uh, because ultimately he believes in God's grace to bad people. He's telling the story of himself, and it's a pretty bad story. He can do it uh, with some humor because... He believes in God's grace for bad people like him. His eventual repentance and transformation is implied. It's implicit. It's not recorded in in this book. 
Um, but this is his testimony, right? This is his testimony, and it's recorded for evangelistic purposes for the sake of the good news about a gracious God who puts up with even prophets like this. So, um, so let's just get a little historical context for Jonah as we begin. So the, the history of is, uh, Israel, um, great King Solomon, right? You've got David and Solomon. Uh, after the reign of Solomon, the kingdom of Israel was divided. And there, were, there was Israel in the north and Judah in the south. And those are two separate kingdoms after Solomon, Israel and Judah. Both kingdoms were on a trajectory of idolatry and apostasy. Uh, but the northern kingdom, Israel, went bad faster than the southern kingdom. Uh, its kings were worse. The people were more caught up in idolatry. Uh, and so God had used the Assyrians. The Assyrians was this great empire, one of the, the greatest ancient empires uh, out of the east, to discipline Israel in his judgment. God used the Assyrians to discipline Israel. The Assyrians invaded Israel. They forced them to pay tribute. The Assyrians were bad, bad people. Um, frighteningly bad people. They would laugh at the idea of things like human rights violations. Uh, they would laugh at the idea of things like war crimes. You could, be, you could stand trial for war crimes. I mean, for them, war was the arena where the strong demonstrated their power in the most vicious ways imaginable to intimidate and humiliate and punish their enemies. No holds barred. No one has ever loved brutal power and violence more than they did. And you can't put rules on that kind of fun, right? War crimes, it's a joke to them. Uh, Nineveh was the biggest city there. Nineveh was maybe not the capital city, but it was the biggest city in Assyria. And Jonah lived during the reign of uh, the evil king Jeroboam II. Evil king in Israel, right? The northern kingdom. So this is the mid-700s. BC. This was a time when Israel, they actually experienced a little relief from Assyria because the Assyrians were paying less attention to them and they were focusing on matters closer to home at the moment. So Israel had convinced themselves that things were going well for them because we're the good guys and God loves us. We're just experiencing God's favor as the good guys should. Hosea and Amos are two other prophets who are prophesying to the northern kingdom in Israel at the same time. They were prophesying to counter that delusion. You're not experiencing God's favor because you're, you're the good guys. They preached against the unfaithfulness of Israel. They preached against the oppressive corruption of Israel. And they called them to repentance for their idolatry. That's Hosea and Amos. Strong words from them. Jonah prophesied that the evil king Jeroboam would restore the borders of Israel that the Assyrians had overrun. You can read about that in 2 Kings 14. Basically, Jonah was a nationalist prophet. He said it's going to be good news for us because we're going to have our borders shored up against this great evil empire, the Assyrians. His message could have been something like, uh, Mega, make Israel great again. Secure the borders, Israel first. That's what his message could have been like. So when God told him to go preach in Nineveh, he didn't like that idea at all. So God said, arise, go to Nineveh in the east. Jonah rose, all right, the opposite direction. He went, headed due west. He fled not only from Nineveh, from his assignment, from his mission there, 
the prophet fled away from the presence of the Lord. That's emphasized here. It says twice. Uh, three times it talks about Tarshish, which is like the ends of the earth in the other direction. <clears throat> so that means whatever was going on here uh, with Jonah, Jonah wanted nothing to do with God. Not just the mission. He wanted nothing to do with God. So what is going on here? Why does Jonah flee from the presence of the Lord? Well, this is definitely one of those books uh, where knowing what happens at the end makes a difference how you read it. Uh, because here we are thinking, you know, reasonable things. Maybe Jonah is scared. I mean, he's, maybe he just doesn't want to walk 600 miles into the, you know, deep into the heart of enemy territory. Who wants to do that? After all, he's told to go call out against Nineveh for their evil. Call out against them for their evil. Most reasonable people would think uh, that, that won't go over very well. And definitely, they don't want to be around people like the Assyrians when you're calling them out for their evil. But that actually didn't seem to be the major problem for Jonah. That's not the main problem. Uh, in the end, you hear the real reason why Jonah refuses and flees. Uh, so don't consider this a spoiler. Consider it the key to interpreting the book. The real reason Jonah resists God is because he knows that God will forgive these very bad people. That's what it says. It says in chapter 4, uh, so after he finally goes and preaches to the Ninevites, and they repent, and God relents from the disaster he was going to bring upon them, it says, it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. And he prayed to the Lord and said, O oh Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? That's why I made haste to flee to Tarshish, for I knew that you're a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O oh Lord, Please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. So he knew God was gracious and merciful, and he hated it. The religious prophet, the chosen mouthpiece of the Lord, hated God's grace. And when you're talking about a God who identifies himself by his grace, because he's taking words that God, it's right, right out of God's mouth. When, when God reveals himself to Moses, he makes this dramatic statement, this I'm gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is who I am, God says. <clears throat> so when you're talking about a God who identifies himself by his grace, uh, it means that Jonah, it doesn't just, he doesn't just hate God's grace. He hates God. He hates God. He didn't hate God because he had some misconception of God. He understood God perfectly, and his logic was spot on. God is merciful, and even though Jonah was being sent to Nineveh with a message of judgment to call out against them for their evil has come forth uh, before God, he knew that God would use it to bring about repentance and forgiveness. He says that. I knew, I knew you would forgive them. And it made him so angry. I mean, in the end of it, he wanted to die. But here, he's just trying to get away from God. <laughs> he's trying to flee the presence of the Lord. The mere thought of God being merciful to bad people, to the enemies of, of his people, that was unbearable to Jonah. Do you understand what that's like? Jonah would rather have nothing to do with God whatsoever than to deal with this God of grace and mercy. In this book, uh, Jonah represents God's people. He represents us, Israel, the church. 
He represents insiders. And Nineveh represents nations, Gentiles, unbelievers. He represents outsiders. And the book exposes the fact that insiders believe that they deserve to be insiders. We believe we're insiders because of who we are. We believe we experience God's favor. We enjoy God's favor because we're the good guys. And for such people, it is intolerable to be faced with the reality that good guys and bad guys, they're on level footing in God's grace. It's intolerable because we, we prefer to establish our own righteousness, to feel good about ourselves. But grace undermines that and it attacks self-righteousness. So when God relates to sinners in his mercy, it implies that if he's relating to us, then it must mean we need his mercy. That we're not the good guys we thought we were after all. That we're the bad guys. It's so intolerable that it breaks our minds. We want to think ourselves good, God-fearing, deserving people. We can't stand it if God's mercy implies other than that. We'd rather run away from God try to run away from God, then be confronted with his grace. And that's the insane thing. It's the folly of the anger at God's grace. Jonah wants to distinguish himself from the pagans. He wants to distinguish himself as a holy man, apart from these pagans. And yet he goes to pagan Joppa. He boards a ship of pagans and flees to faraway pagan Tarshish, all because he can't stand being made equal to pagans by God's grace. That doesn't make any sense. He flees away from the presence of the Lord because he prefers to think that he has a claim to that presence in and of himself. And he can't stand the Lord's presence if it means something other than that. The man whose identity is built around God can't stand God. He can't stand God's grace. You're telling me that apart from your grace, I'd be a pagan just like them? then I'd rather be a pagan just like them than need your grace. Jonah's coming to realize that he actually hates God. He can't live with himself, so he runs, which makes no sense because he can't run from God. That's the insanity of it. But God, in his mercy, does not leave him alone. It's in his mercy that he does not leave Jonah alone. He sends this storm, not just to redirect Jonah to get him back on track, but to show us that he's able to orchestrate all things for the sake of his mercy, even using that terrible, chaotic, destructive storm at sea, which everyone knows is a sign of judgment, not mercy, this terrible, life-threatening storm. It's a bad enough storm that even the experienced sailors are terrified, and they all get really desperate, crying out to their pagan gods, and they're throwing overboard their precious cargo. It's their livelihood. But Jonah is down in the hold sleeping. That's not good. He's not sleeping because he's at peace. As he's coming to realize that he actually hates God for who God really is. That he can't live with himself. He's trying to run with God. It's all too much for him. It's better to be unconscious than to face the overwhelming problem of his life. His own hatred for God. Rather than face God and accept God's reality, he just checks out. It's a a sleep of depression and despair. 
So the captain comes down and rebukes him. The pagan rebukes him. The pagan rebukes the great prophet. The outsider preaches the message that Jonah is supposed to preach. He says, basically, you know, your, your faith is not leading you to pursue the common good here. Why are you asleep? Get up and pray with us and for us. <clears throat> you better know what, what this is like. You better know this is how God works. He judges his people by those who aren't his people. He does it a lot. He judges his people by those who are not his people. And it ends up driving everyone to his mercy. Do you know any unbelievers? Do you know any unbelievers who are better people than you are? I mean, you should. You should know some unbelievers who are better people than you. Are you ever stung by an unbeliever's criticism of the church? You should. Sometimes they have some pretty good criticisms to make. That's how God works. And it's not to make you try harder to be better so that nobody can ever be better than you and you never have a good criticism brought against you. It's to get you to know that it's, it's not about you being a good person. It's, it's about God's mercy. So God uses the pagans to call Jonah to confess his sins, to, to recognize his need for absolute mercy and absolute grace. The pagans are right to condemn Jonah. And the takeaway for Jonah should be, I'm certainly no better than they are. I deserve condemnation. I do need God's grace as much as they do. <clears throat> so it's, it's hard to tell whether this is sinking in at all for him. Uh, he seems pretty reluctant to admit this throughout the whole book, but I think we can take heart knowing that he's probably the one who wrote the book. He probably came to grips with what God was doing, and he wrote all this down as a confession of his sin and a testimony of God's grace. He wrote it for our sake. He seems to grit his teeth and confess. Um, he doesn't want to, but, uh, but confess that he's probably the reason for the storm. The sailors say, what have you done? What are we supposed to do now? And that just heaps more guilt on his head. And he's obviously still torn between faith and despair. And so he says, just throw me overboard and you'll be saved. Maybe he should have just jumped overboard himself. He made them do it. <clears throat> they didn't want to do it because these pagans were better than he was. So they tried in vain to row back to land. They tried to save his life, but they couldn't. So uh, as a last resort, they begged God's forgiveness themselves, and they hurled him into the sea, and it worked, and God calmed the storm. And the pagans worshipped God, and they offered sacrifices to him, to the one true God. So God used the judgment of the insider to be merciful to the outsiders and to bring them into a relationship with himself. That's a strange salvation. God in his mercy condemns his prophet, his prophet who represents his people. And then more people are brought in to receive God's mercy. And that's the sign of Jonah that Jesus was talking about. Mercy to outsiders through the judgment of the insiders. So this book is about God's mercy. It's a plea for repentance. It's an intervention. That's never fun. But it's good. And it eventually leads to restoration. If you think you deserve God's favor, if you think that you don't need God's mercy or grace... Well, God will hunt you down and he'll make you miserable until you realize how much you actually hated him so that you can repent and actually receive his grace.
even his warnings, even his judgments, even the doom that he hurls at you, leads you to his mercy. The storm was Jonah's doom. And then the fish, that's doom. Right? Imagine being cast into the angry sea during a god storm, being swallowed alive by who knows what kind of sea creature. I mean, that's death. You're dead for sure. That's doom. But God saves his people through death, through the death of his prophet, through the death of the one who represents his people. Self-righteous people like the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day, people who hated the implications of God's grace so much that they refused to celebrate when salvation comes to outsiders, self-righteous people like them and like Jonah and like us, they hear Jesus say, you're getting the sign of Jonah. That is to say, what Jonah represented was that the insiders deserved death, they'd be saved from what they deserved through a representative suffering what they deserved. And sometimes uh, or someone would taste the doom that God's people deserved, and it would be like Jonah in the belly of a fish three days and three nights. And when he tasted that doom for God's people, it would mean the mercy of God and their salvation. So Jesus is this greater one. He says he's the greater than Jonah. He's Jonah as he should have been. Jonah slept through the storm because he couldn't stand God's sovereign grace. Jesus had a similar experience. He was asleep on a boat in a storm because he absolutely trusted his father's power and his love. Because he had a good relationship with God. Because he was at peace with God. Jonah deserved to taste his doom. The doom that Jesus got on the cross, Jesus didn't deserve that. Jonah represented God's people as a symbol. This is what we're like. We're like Jonah. Jesus represents God's people as a substitute. We're not like that. It's a good thing he's, he's like that for us. Jonah got, you know, kind of gross inside of fish guts. Jesus was tortured and crucified and killed. Jonah was insanely reluctant every step of the way. Jesus knew exactly what he was doing. And he marched toward the cross for the joy that was set before him. He was willing to go on God's mission <clears throat> for the sake of outsiders. Jonah hated the outsiders and wanted to distance himself from them, uh, but paradoxically became just like them, just like the pagans when he did that. Jesus loved the outsiders. He moved toward them. And even though he was really unlike us sinners, he became like us. He became sin. For us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jonah despised God's mercy. Jesus is God's mercy. The story of Jonah leaves you hanging for God's mercy. Jesus is the full provision of it, the, the full provision of God's mercy. Jesus is the ultimate insider who suffered judgment for outsiders, for our salvation. If the story of Jonah is a call to repentance from self-righteousness, how much more is the story of the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus a call to repentance? Look at Jonah, then you look at Jesus. You cannot think for a moment that you don't need God's grace. He doesn't allow you to think that you're in because you're better than them, whoever they are, because you're a certain color or a certain ethnicity or a certain nationality or because you're, you know, reformed, better than them. 
We want to distinguish ourselves from others, but God's mercy highlights our similarities, highlights our common need for his forgiveness, for his grace. You cannot think of Jesus and think you don't need his grace. Your only other options are keep looking at him and go insane or just check out altogether and go to sleep and try to deny him, try to run away from him. But God is a God who will track you down and bring you back to Jesus to confess your sin and your need of his mercy because he's good. As it says in Psalm 23, surely goodness and mercy shall follow me, pursue me, hotly pursue me, track me down, hunt me down all the days of my life. And the good news is that in Jesus Christ, God has shown himself truly to be a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Yes, you've got to come to know him on those terms, on his terms. He is a God of mercy and grace for sinners, for bad people, and you're one of those. But it means that he's a God of mercy and grace. Coming to him on his terms means you're coming to a God of mercy and grace. Isn't that worth coming to him as a sinner in need? I mean, we're all in the same boat here. We've all been hunted down by him in the same way. Let's stop running and turn around and let him be gracious to us. Amen. Let's pray. Father, you're good. And you are far better than, uh, to us than we deserve. Help us to behold your grace and uh, to embrace it, to be changed by it. Even if we've been really self-righteous, you have not utterly forsaken us, but you call us to repentance. Reveal to us the ways in which we've resisted your grace and fled your presence and hated you so that we can turn and find rest for our souls in you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.